As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Ron. And I'm Mike. And this is our review of The Guest, starring Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens' piercing blue eyes. Micah Monroe, Leland Orser, Sheila Kelly, Brendan Meyer, and Lance Reddick. Directed by Adam Wingard and written by Simon Barrett, The Guest was released in 2014 with a reported budget of $5 million. It only grossed $2.7 million at the box office, but despite that disappointing performance, it's become something of a cult movie with a growing following. And it hasn't harmed Adam Wingard's career any because a few years after he does this, he goes off to do King Kong versus Godzilla, which you can hear about in the Filmstrip archives. But before we get into all that, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Or at least tell us the bits that aren't part of your classified military files from Fort Kenilworth. Yes, first of all, my name's not really Mike, but I am not allowed to divulge my real name because uh, I killed somebody and burned him alive. It burned him up so that I could steal his identity. Um, uh, film strip listeners probably know me. I've been on several times before. Mike Scott, I am the host of Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world. Uh, I gotta stop doing that accent because it keeps sliding into Scottish. I, I had it down, Ron, year, you know, like a year ago, and now I've just lost it. But uh, I also do stuff with the Dana Buckler show. I've guessed it on uh, shows like uh, the Cobwebs podcast, Action Drunkies with our mutual friend Rob Antiquera, several other things. Um, I, I'm kind of a podcast whore, honestly. I will just show up wherever somebody wants me to, put a microphone in my face, and I'm good to go. Well, and that's exactly what we thought. Uh, when, because when we thought we were talking about doing Halloween movies, we wanted to do something that was Halloween themed, but not we're not going to go back and redo all the Halloweens because we've covered all those. So one of my favorite non-Halloween Halloween movies is actually this one, The Guest. And you're probably the first person that popped up when I was talking to Jay about putting this one on the schedule and who we could do this movie with. This is my Halloween movie. I watch this every halloween so i am super excited to get to talk about it and i am super excited to talk about it with you before we start actually discussing it what is your history with the guest so um as you know ron i live in salt lake city utah the home of the sundance film festival so this first popped up on my radar in 20 like in january of 2014 because it had its premiere at sundance and unfortunately, I was not able to see it. I, I really wanted to because I was a big fan. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Wingard and Barrett's previous movie, You're Next. And so I really wanted to see it, but I missed it. And then it really didn't get much of a theatrical release. So I kind of marked it. And then as soon as it dropped on digital, because it, it came out digitally first before it hit Blu-ray, the day it was available. I didn't even rent it. I just went and bought it. And then I watched it probably that morning. I, I think I was maybe working from home and I stopped it and I immediately started it over. 
And then my wife got home and I said, we're watching this movie. Uh, and so I actually watched it three times the first day that I was able to see it because I just, it hit me, man. This movie really hit me. Like it, it, it's everything I wanted it to be. So I, I couldn't have been happier when I first saw it. I was first exposed to the guest because we still had a video store. We had the, the late lamented Wild and Wooly video here in Louisville. And this was on. When, when you went to Wild and Wooly, one of the things I would always do is when I would go to a particular section, especially the new releases, I would look and see what the staff liked because the staff had really good taste in movies. I mean, this had, this had been an independent video store for 20 years at this point. Some of the staff had been there since the 90s, and I had pretty good faith that they, you know, they usually didn't tend to steer you wrong. So I started poking around and I saw this movie, The Guest. And I was like, oh, that, that movie looks cool. Let's check it out. It's got like five or six staff-like stickers on it. So let's do it. And I took it home and I watched it and I didn't return it to the video store. I just, I went back and said, I've got this, D I've got this DVD. Let me just buy it. So I bought the physical DVD from the uh, video store that I rented it from. And it has stayed in pretty regular rotation for me ever since. It's been a while since I've watched it before this time. But man, I'm kicking myself for not for not making it a regular part of the rotation, even outside of the Halloween Halloween time when I need that little that little taste of uh, fall in New Mexico as it is. Yeah, well, and that's what's one of the things that I think is so great about it is because, you know, it is a Halloween movie. I mean, it takes place on Halloween, though. You know, we'll go through the plot, but climax takes place at like a Halloween. They're setting up for a Halloween dance. There's pumpkin carving. There's Halloween parties. But it also functions unlike some Halloween movies where I know there's a lot of people that that will, you know, they watch horror all year long. But there's some horror movies that to me, they just feel like it feels like watching them not in October feels kind of wrong. But this one plays all year long because it also works great as an action movie. And so you can kind of just watch it anytime you want to, because it's it's really a terrific blend of sort of action and horror. And as you know, Ron, I'm, you know, as much as I like horror, I'm an action guy first and foremost. And so that's one of the other things when I first saw it that really resonated with me is I did not expect this movie to go as hard as it. There's not a ton of action scenes in it, but the ones that are there, the movie goes pretty hard on. And I was not expecting that. Yeah. And it's a good variety of action sequences too it's not just you know one or two things it's not just like a shooting or something or uh, a car chase they really seem to go out of their way to get a few different kinds of action scenes in and it's really kind of a showcase for for the action ideas that they had and i think it works really really well as an action movie and i think it works really really well as kind of sliding into that uh like you said that action horror niche that uh, some of my all-time favorite movies kind of reside in. I mean, what's the Terminator if not like an action horror movie? Yeah, no, absolutely. And Wingard and Barrett have actually cited the Terminator as kind of one of their influences on this. And and I agree with you. For me, action horror is my favorite subgenre of of horror. I actually just did a, a little cross promotion here. I did a podcast with my friend Lindsay Wilkins, the Schlock and Awe podcast where I was arguing that The Raid is actually a action horror movie, not a straight action movie. I really like it when you can blend those two genres together, you know, thinking of things like also like Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers and, and even The Crow. You know, as much as I love horror, I don't love really nihilistic, bleak, dark horror. 
I'm looking at you, Brian Bertino. I like it when it's got a little bit more oomph to it, a little more, little more blood in its veins, if you will. And so that's why I really like horror that can incorporate action elements like this one does. I, I'm actually there with you uh, on the raid as both an action movie and a horror movie. It feels kind of like if the people under the stairs weren't just a bunch of uh, unfortunate children and they were gang affiliated murderers looking to collect a bounty because they just seemed to come out of the walls in the raid. Yeah, that's that's what I argued. It's functionally indistinguishable from like a zombie movie, right? You've got a small group of heroes who are besieged on all sides by these, you know, people that are like unstoppable killers, essentially. And uh, I've gotten a lot of pushback from people on that. And I always tell them, watch it, watch the raid through the lens of a horror movie. And, and I've gotten pushback even arguing that on The Terminator, that people are like, no, it's sci fi action. And I've told people I did Dana and I, as you know, Ron, we did a deep dive on the Terminator series. And we talked a lot about that on that first episode we did where I said, how is the Terminator any different from Jason? He's literally Jason Voorhees just as a robot. Now, admittedly, James Cameron is a better director than any of the Friday the 13th movies ever had. So it hits harder and it, it looks better. But the Terminator still basically just it's a slasher movie. It just is dressed up in sci-fi tropes. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Terminator series you did with Dana because that that's an incredible series. And it's one I've actually gone back to re-listen to. And I don't I don't typically go back to re-listen to podcasts like that. But that was some great work that you guys did. And that's a, and especially that episode on the first Terminator. That's a really, really good one. And that's a really, really good point. But speaking of mixing your horror with your action... I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this uh, plot summary that I wrote that's probably too long, but I'm going to read it all anyway. I'll just sit here and think about Dan Stevens' dreamy blue eyes while you're, while you're reading it off. A lot of people didn't come home from Afghanistan. Among them is Caleb, the eldest son of Spencer and Laura Peterson, brother to Luke and Anna. As the family grieves, they're visited by a friend of Caleb's from his old unit, the devastatingly handsome David Collins sergeant from Caleb's old squad who wanted to come help his friend's family find some closure. He's polite, handsome, friendly, handsome, charming, and handsome, so Laura allows him to spend a little time with the family and get readjusted to civilian life. Sure, Spencer's having trouble at work and Luke is having trouble at school, but there's no problem that David can't offer a solution to. When Luke gets punched at school, David takes Luke to the bar where the bullies hang out and he beats the whole gaggle of teenagers unmercifully dropping a big wad of cash to keep things hushed up. That night, David goes to a Halloween dance after 20-something Anna gets guilted into taking him by her mother. David is again charming, handsome, and charming, making friends with all of Anna's friends and saving Anna's friend Kristen from a pushy ex-boyfriend. Unsurprisingly, that blows Kristen's panties clean off and she and David go have sex before David asks Anna's other friend Craig to get him some guns. Bit of a troubling request, but hey, he's a soldier. Soldiers like guns, right? Even the reluctant Anna seems to be getting worn down by David's relentless handsomeness, and she offers to make him a mix CD, which is the early 2000s version of getting engaged, basically. As David integrates into the family's life, giving Luke advice and that kind of thing, he starts to arouse a few more suspicions in Anna after she overhears a conversation he has on a burner phone. She does a little research, calling Fort Kenilworth to investigate David a little further. That triggers an alert to a private company called KPG, you know it's nefarious because it's just three initials, where Lance Reddick's Major Carver is there. David isn't just your normal handsome soldier. He's a government experiment, and he's very, very dangerous, especially after he kills Anna's friend Craig, an unnamed arms dealer drifter, and he gets an ammo box full of weapons, pistols, rifles, and a couple of grenades. 
and his boyfriend Zeke gets blamed for the murders after a David frame-up, but all the shirtlessness in the world can't stop Anna and Luke from digging into just who David truly is. Which is a fine way to thank David for teaching Luke how to stand up to bullies, giving him a cool butterfly knife, and keeping him from getting suspended at school after he hits a guy in the face with a ruler. Carver shows up with a SWAT team looking for David. They find him and a shootout commences. Now that David's cover's blown, he's going to have to eliminate all the loose ends. Not because he wants to, as Lance Reddick explains, but because his programming won't allow him not to kill everyone in the town. Laura, the nice mother, gets killed with a kitchen knife. David crashes his getaway car into Spencer's car and shoots him for good measure. And while Lance Reddick gives Anna exposition about David, he drives to town and kills Kristen, then blows up the town diner. Now the race is on. Who will get to Luke first, David or Anna? Both parties race to the gym where Luke is working on decorations for the school's very cool Halloween prom dance homecoming thing. But before Anna and Carver can get Luke in escape, the lights go down. Awesome Mix Volume 3, The Murder Year, starts playing. And now it's David versus everybody. Carver gets caught, crawling dramatically out of the corn maze to die in front of Anna. Luke's teacher adds to the body count. Anna ends up shooting David with Carver's discarded gun, but she only hits him in the leg. David is choking Anna to death only for Luke to spring into action and stab David with the butterfly knife from earlier. David tells Luke he did the right thing, and he gives him a Terminator-style thumbs up before dying, but dying in quotation marks. Because as Anna and Luke sit outside, drinking hot beverages, wrapped in foil blankets, or whatever they do for people who just killed a guy in self-defense, Anna notices a handsome, limping, handsome, blue-eyed, handsome firefighter. The two lock eyes. It's David, still alive, but sneaking away in disguise. Perfect setup for a sequel, but shame there wasn't one. What the fuck? Perfect way to end. <laughs> yes, it, that is exactly the kind of note for this movie to go out on. Because <laughs> the first time I saw this, that was my res- that was my immediate reaction to when David is looking out at her from behind that firefighter costume. Absolutely. But yes, okay, so before we even get started, I told you there was going to be much discussion of Dan Stevens, so let's just get it out of the way. Has there been a handsomer person in a movie ever? Oh my god, I don't know, man. Uh, He's right up there, though. Like, I'm sure people can come up with other ones, but oh god, he's right up there. I mean, he is, everything about him is working in this movie. Um, And I don't know, I don't know, Ron, if you know the the story of him almost not getting the part uh because of the previous movie that he did do you do you know about this did you read about this at all no i did not uh, read about that at all prior to this he was in the liam neeson movie a walk among tombstones where he plays which he's great in but he plays a heroin addict and so he had cut down to like i don't know 125 pounds or something like that And they only had a month before they started shooting when they cast him. And he promised he would get into the shape that they needed. So Wingard and Barrett went ahead and cast him. As Barrett described it, he came to us as Christian Bale from The Machinist, and we needed him to be Christian Bale from Batman Begins. And so Stevens literally hit the gym every single day. They got him trainers and stuff like that. But they also rearranged the shooting schedule. Because they knew the scene where he comes out of the bathroom in the towel. They were like, that's that's like our trailer money shot, right? Like we're going to Wingard even said, I want to objectify the hell out of Dan Stevens in that scene. Like I want to just make him like sex incarnate. 
And so that was like the very last scene they shot so that he had the entire shooting schedule to pack on muscle. And he did. He packed on 25 pounds of muscle. But if you watch the movie closely, you will see throughout it, his physique kind of radically changes from scene to scene because of where they shoot it uh, versus where he's packing on the muscle. There's no question that it was all worth it because that scene where he comes out of that bathroom is just, man, what a snack that dude is. (laughs) There's no way around it. He's just incredible looking. And we've talked offline a couple of times about uh, Dan Stevens and how he rarely uses his handsomeness for good. You know, he could, he's very much the, the kind of guy who could definitely coast into some rom-coms as being just the good looking guy with the British accent or maybe not the British accent because his, uh, his uh, vague Southern accent isn't terrible in this. It's pretty consistent. It's definitely not. No, it's definitely not Tara. You know, you and I are very dialed into bad Southern accents and it's not <laughs> bad at all. It's because he plays it subtle. He doesn't go over the top with it. He just does the, the very kind of subtle uh, Southern accent, which is usually, I think, the way to go. Yeah, 100%. You can't you can't dial it up to full hee-haw uh, like a lot of people have the tendency to do. It's it's really easy to go broad with a southern accent in much the same way that every one of my English accents ends up becoming like Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins <laughs> levels of bad. He's really the engine that drives this whole movie because you see him. He's so handsome. He's so nice. He's so charming. He's a he's only slightly off kilter in the beginning. There's just a few little things where he looks slightly askance. There's a real what I love about the start of this is sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but this is kind of on point. There's a real blankness to him that I think really works like he turns on that smile and that charm and his smile in this movie is just exceptionally perfect. But when he's not talking to somebody, he does something. I think it's really subtle, but it's really cool where his face just goes blank. And and as the movie goes on, you realize it's because it's because he doesn't feel there's no actual emotions that he's feeling. Everything he does is a front, uh, whether it's anger or charmingness or being funny or romantic or whatever. It's all a front. And there's a couple of scenes in the very beginning where you can see it, where he just kind of when Laura goes, when she goes to cry and leaves him alone, there's just when she comes back, there's just a look on his face where he's just he's just blank. And then he looks at her and he smiles again and he points at the picture and he goes, see, that's me right there. But you can see it for just a second before that. There's just nothing going on on his face. I cannot sing his praises in this movie highly enough. Without him, I don't think they can make this movie. Or if they do, I don't think it's as nearly as good as the movie ends up being. Because, spoiler alert, we both seem like we're pretty big fans of this. But when we get to the popcorn ratings, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things that he does. You can see his emotion filter just turn off and turn back on with whatever he's supposed to be feeling at the time. Whatever he thinks he's supposed to be feeling. And there's just... There's just a slight pause, especially in the beginning, where you can see that it, it almost seems like he's reading a situation. It's like, oh, I should smile here. Smile. Oh, I should look slightly concerned or chagrined. I should look down and give like a little scuffy chuckle and, and accept this guy for his offer of a beer. Man, this guy can also put away beer because it looks like in that uh, hangout session he has with the father, 
it looks like he houses a six pack by himself, which is without even blinking. Well, and they even comment on that because Spencer says, man, you can put away your beer. And he's like, yeah, I guess so. You know, or I even think he maybe says something like I have a high metabolism or something like that. But and that comes back to when he's driving uh, Anna home later and he's like, I'm driving your stone. And she's like, how are you any less stone? And he just goes, I'm bigger than you. And and we know that it's actually no, because he's like some, you know, genetic experiment. And so he's probably like Captain America. Like he probably can't even fucking get drunk, you know, <laughs> you know, but like he just he, he plays everything off so naturally. Initially, we as the audience know something's off, but you could absolutely see why none of the characters would figure that something's off. Because, again, you're also dazzled. I mean, I, I know we're talking about how hot Dan Stevens is. That's, I think, impactful imperative to the character because you have to be dazzled by how attractive he is so you're not noticing all the other weird things that he's doing when he smiles with those baby blues you have to be like oh that seemed weird but oh no he's, he's smiling at me now like it's fine i'm sure it's fine it's not a problem he's not a psychopathic government experiment gone wrong at all no it's fine like it's very important that he is as a, attractive in this movie as he is and it's not even just that he's attractive, but that's a big part of it. He's also, un he also seems unfailingly polite. He's always like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. He is 100% on his best behavior. And I think that even if you do, even if they did see the seams, they could just put it down as being like, oh, he's probably just having a little trouble getting readjusted to civilian life. Oh, he just is trying to be polite. He seems to go pretty far out of his way to mind his P's and Q's, but do it in a way that it's noticeable if you, if you're following my drift. So that like those minute, those moments where he does seem a little disconnected, it's kind of just, oh, he's, trying to think of the polite way to address this situation or I'm crying because my son is dead and that makes him very uncomfortable or my husband is drunk on the couch staring at a football game complaining about his work problems. This is a family that's very much in pain, that's very much grieving, that's very much having difficulties. It seems like many aspects of life, there are money issues that are mentioned, the uh, failed promotion at work, Luke's having trouble at school, Anna's having issues with her boyfriend Zeke, and she's coming home smelling like frying medium every night from her. From her uh, shifts at the diner. It's like the perfect family for him to ingratiate himself with, right? Because he's everything to everyone. For Laura, he's this connection to her son. For Spencer, he's kind of like the friend who understands his work problems. And he's the man. He's the other man around the house because Luke is very clearly not, you know, in Spencer's eyes, a man. Uh, and so David gets to be that for Luke. He's the protective bigger brother because we definitely need to talk about the bar scene at some point, you know, and for Anna, he's she's the one that he sort of misfires with, which is why she's the first to figure out that there's something going wrong with him. But even with her, it's like, oh, he's the charming, well put together guy that Zeke isn't. So he literally positions himself as the perfect person for every person in this family and adjusts his personality for each one of them. With Laura, he's like this just kind, polite young man. But then he goes to the party with Anna and he's bringing in kegs and he's smoking weed and he's banging Kristen. You know, he's one of the cool guys. And with Luke, he's like, he's going to defend him and protect him. It, it's it's really kind of very clever the way the script establishes, again, so subtly that he's shifting his personality 
as he interacts with every single person. It never comes across in a way that doesn't feel organic or that wouldn't feel organic to the people in these situations because it comes across as like, oh, he's starting to let his guard down. He's starting to get readjusted. He's starting to get back on his feet. He figures out the best way to get to everyone, even... It seems Anna, she never completely drops her defenses. And I'm not sure if that's just because she's kind of positioned as the outsider, even in the family. She's always walking into these situations and observing them rather than directly interacting with David. Yeah, I think so. And I also sort of get the sense that she and I'm I'm reading in between the lines here. um, I also sort of get the sense that she was maybe the closest one to Caleb. She maybe already has a little bit of an inkling that this guy, this doesn't really feel like somebody that would be good friends with Caleb. You know what I mean? Like she's but she's definitely the observer because she already feels like the outsider. Like that's the whole point, I think, of setting up her relationship with Zeke. You know, she is the outsider. She's not the bad girl, the black sheep of the family, so to speak. But she kind of is because Zeke's a, you know, useless drug dealer. Even though I love Chase Williamson, I love him in every movie that I've ever seen him in. But, you know, he's kind of the useless drug dealer. And so there is this part where she's like inherently distrustful. Whereas the rest of the family is hurting so much that they're so desperate to have a surrogate Caleb back in the family that they're willing to just overlook everything. You know, we especially see that like with Laura and Spencer, like Laura is just so blown away by the end. You know, when they come for David, she just can't even wrap her brain around the fact that somehow, you know, something's off about David, David and men with guns are coming to kill him. To me, the person who seems willing to overlook David's flaws the most is Luke. And I think that's because we see David and Luke spend the most time together. And I'm not sure if that is some sort of lingering, protective instinct on David's part or if he just sees that Luke is the easiest mark in the family because Luke is is having so much problem at school and is getting bullied and and is, you know, getting picked on by the cool kids and stuff. And that's a way for David to kind of get his hooks into someone pretty easily because Luke is clearly drifting and is in need of sort of a, a big brother figure, a protective figure. Well, I, I think it's I think it's the the protective because the thing for me at least, my interpretation of this is David does not come into this family's life with the intent to kill them. He comes into their lives with the intent of protecting them because he was friends with Caleb. We know that because he says, yeah, we were in the same program together. And so I think he legitimately comes into this family's like, because otherwise, why does he kill Spencer's boss? Right. He's legitimately trying to make their life better. It's only when everything starts going to shit that he realizes the mission's gone foobar and his programming kicks in and he's got to eliminate, you know, any witnesses. But I think at the start of the movie, for about at least 50% of the movie, David is here to support and help this family in his fucked up way. And and so I don't think it's that he's like sociopathically ingratiating himself to Luke. I think he legitimately sees Luke being beaten at school and wants to protect him because that's what Caleb would have wanted him to do. Like for me, and, and I know there's a there's a lot of interpretations of this movie, but for me, David isn't actually a bad guy. He is a monster, but he's almost more like a Frankenstein's monster where there's Mm -hmm. sympathy for him. He's trying to do what he was 
intending to do. It's just, again, when things start going haywire, like, like, and maybe this is my own headcanon, but his whole idea is going to come, he's going to fix his family, he's going to make sure they're okay, and then he's going to fuck off the floor to get plastic surgery and disappear, right? But mm-hmm. he has no intentions of actually coming in to kill this family until Anna starts sticking her nose in his business, and then he's left with no other choice. I don't like the idea of that thinking, you know, let's talk about it now, that bar scene. I don't, I guess, and for me, I don't like the idea of thinking that that bar scene is completely manipulative on David's part, because that's my favorite scene in the movie. I will, Kelsey and I will sit around and I'll be like, I'll just randomly say blowjob shots for the girls and cosmopolitans for the guy. (laughs) I legitimately feel, and maybe part of that is, is, well, some of it is, I can actually say, I think it's also on the page because I did not rewatch this before recording this time because I've seen it 15 times. But what I did do was track down the script and read the script. It's on the page. I think it's pretty clear that, no, David likes Luke. He's he's there until the very end. And I think even at the end, it's true when Luke stabs him and he says, you, you did the right thing. I, I don't blame you. You know, and gives him the thumbs up. I think especially out of the family, he really does. He wanted to make sure Luke was okay. Yeah, and I think that I, I misstated my point. Uh, I don't necessarily think that it was overt manipulation. I I think there was something in, I feel like there was something also in David's programming that helped him pick the proper targets, I guess. Because for me, the whole thing about David's programming suggests to me that he is some sort of infiltration specialist because he's supposed to yeah, you know, absolutely. cover up his own things. And I think that he both wants to be helpful to Caleb's family and to help his friend. But I also think he can't escape. He can't escape the program that was given to him. And I think that's that's pretty much throughout the movie. One of the things they kind of end up going back to, especially in this bar scene, we can't overstate just how like charming he is, how good he is with Luke, how how quickly they seem to establish a rapport which having been an awkward teenager, that is, it was, I have no doubt it would have been like pulling teeth to establish a rapport with me at that age, (laughs) especially when, you know, you're just some friend of my dead brother, man, he is, David is so cool throughout this movie, but no cooler than in this bar scene, because it's very much, he does antagonize the bullies, but you know, if someone got me a free drink, I don't think I would be too particular. I love the way that he just does little things. Like when he first meets Luke and he's like, you look like you got in a fight. And Luke's like, no, I I got hit by a football. I wasn't paying attention. And you just see this look on his face and he goes, yeah, that can happen. You know, and you know, he, you know that he knows that Luke is full of shit. And so it's like, again, it's one of those things where he doesn't have any incentive really. But I do agree with you that it is still part of his programming because he could have shown up at their house at any time. It's not by accident that he shows up when Spencer's gone because he knows he can get to Laura. Like Laura's his in, right? And then Luke is his bigger in. And, and, and so it's all calculated. So I agree with you completely, but I I do think because I've seen some people that just are like, oh, he's just a monster and just everything. And I'm like, "Ah, that's just not my read on the movie is. And I'm not saying you were saying that, but I've seen other people say that it's calculated, but it's calculated so that he can make sure the family's okay until, again, it all goes to shit. 
it harkens back to the uh you know the the parable of the scorpion or whatever the the scorpion, the scorpion and the frog the scorpion yeah. and the frog yeah the scorpion sees the frog and it's like why'd you do that i saved your life and like, well i'm a scorpion it's what i do i think that i think that the only thing that david could have done with his particular set of skills that would have been more he would have been more effective at would be like a car salesman yeah or the stock market right working in a boiler room like hanging out with vin diesel working in a boiler room <laughs> selling penny stocks yeah, um, being in the movie Boiler Room. Yeah, yeah, but but no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But it is, and that's what I love about this movie is that this movie requires us, even though we know something's wrong. We we know from minute one. We know what kind of movie we're watching. We know something's wrong, but it still requires us to be invested and hope that maybe David's gonna somehow break his programming or something along those lines you know maybe it's a universal soldier thing and, and and he's the van damme instead and it's like no he's the fucking terminator he's just he's been programmed to function with people but when the other programming goes off and and like you said i think it's pretty clear yeah he's supposed to be infiltration or something like that you know there's no question in my mind about that because of the way he can just so easily glide through different social groups. If the first half of this movie doesn't work so well to get us on his side, and I mean, they're even doing that right up until almost the very end, like when he gets Luke out of trouble. I love the scene where he gets Luke out of trouble for breaking the ruler over uh, over the kid's head. You know, what now, what what name did he call him? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> did he call him the F word? Uh, well, I, I, I think that's my day. So that makes it a hate crime. <laughs> you know, and he's just he's so calm and cool and collected about it. But then we get the 180 because that's when Luke screws everything up and tells him that Anna asked him to look into all this stuff. And that's you can literally see it on his face. That's when David knows it's all gone to shit. You know, Operation Scorched Earth, you know, Scorched Earth Protocol activates in his head. And, mm -hmm. you, and you can literally see it on his face as he's doing it. You can see that. And. Maybe I'm reading a little too a little bit too much into his expression, but he he also kind of looks a little regretful. Like it's almost you can kind of see almost a hint of like oh, didn't want to have to do this kind of pass on his face. Am I am I looking too closely at it? Am I reading too much in there? I don't think so because I think later in the movie it supports that. I can't remember if it's before he kills Laura or when he's talking to Anna and Luke and he says. I tried to find another way to do this. I really did. You know, Oh, I, I think it's when he's talking to Anna and Luke and he's talking them, stalking them. But then when he's right before he kills Laura, he says, you know, I'm really sorry about this, Mrs. Peterson. I truly am. You know, so I, I don't think it's I don't think you're looking too deep into it. I think it's I think this, you know, PMC has made a monster. And I don't think David necessarily is upset that he's a monster, but I think there's still a component of humanity in him. And so he still wants to be the best monster he can be, I guess, would be the way I would describe it. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. not allowed to be in this. Uh, everything, you know, goes bad. Yeah. And he still has the mission that he was given by Caleb, I think. And he kind of feels bad that, well, I had to let Caleb down because I've clearly I've not improved his family's life by murdering them. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen some people online, some theories online that have argued he never knew Caleb or even I saw a ridiculous theory that he was Caleb, which just flies in the face of 
not just the movie, but everything Wingard and Baird have said. I think it's pretty clear that he did know, you know, I think people get confused, you know, because we're calling him David, but the movie makes pretty explicit. He is not David Collins. He is somebody else. He, in his escape, he killed David Collins, took his dog tags, took all of that stuff. But I don't think that means he didn't know Caleb because we see the picture at the very start of the movie where he's there with Caleb. I, I think that confuses people who don't actually pay attention to movies very much but uh, no i think it's pretty clear he knew caleb and he was there like i said yeah my whole theory is he was there to actually make this family's life better it just the best laid plans of uh you know or uh, the old joke how do you make god laugh make a plan david doesn't do well he makes all these plans but then when they don't come together his programming is well scorched earth and and that's kind of really one of the things I like about this movie. It's, it's kind of a tragedy. I mean, if you think about it, it, it's really just kind of sad that for as much of a monster as he is, David doesn't get a chance to actually have a decent life because it's not like he I mean, he did choose to be turned into what he was. But, you know, he's he didn't turn himself into that. Somebody else did that. And that's where sort of the whole, like I said, the Frankenstein thing kind of comes in. I don't even necessarily think that he chose. I think it was uh, sort of a voluntold situation. Well, so this is actually one of the things that's in the script. So ah. Barrett and Wingard, uh, specifically Barrett, said that the script is about 20 minutes longer. And really, there's not much difference to it. It's it's almost 90% exactly what's on screen. But there is a lot more backstory about David and... They actually, after the first test screening, even before Sundance, it didn't test well. Audiences didn't, they thought it was too much exposition and they just, they weren't that interested in knowing about David. So they cut it all out. I completely agree, but there is a whole, Lance Reddick has a whole, when he's talking to Anna about who David is and that he was part of this project and stuff, there's a whole lot more in there about how David got injured and he volunteered for this program and that what the program did was it severed the test subjects abilities to fill pain and also allowed them to increase their adrenaline. And so because of that, the, the program failed because what ended up happening is everybody lost their ability to feel empathy and human emotions, and they all turned into David. And so it really gets bogged down in a lot of details. That's kind of cool. You know, like, I'm glad I read the script, but I don't think that necessarily would have made the movie any better to have that stuff, if it makes sense. So he did choose to do it, but he didn't necessarily choose to become the person that he became after the experiment, if that's the best way I can describe it. No, that, that makes total sense. We do need to talk a little bit more about the, the action scene in the bar because that is, that's a phenomenally put together action sequence and it really shows you just what David is capable of. And you kind of see just how we can tell from the beginning, knowing what kind of movie it is, like you said, and knowing the little cues we get through Dan Stevens' performance, we know that this guy, there's something not all there with him. There's something missing. When he puts on this show at the bar, this really well choreographed, just vicious beat down of multiple people without breaking a sweat or without losing kind of the little smile he's got on his face. It's clear immediately then if you if you had missed the cues before that this is a dude not to be trifled with and that this family is is really in over their head. 
Absolutely. Especially because, you know, they all suck and they're all terrible people. But we should remember he's beating down children like like, <laughs> like Hell's Angels at a biker bar. He's beating down high school kids. So like it, it is one of those things. It's one of the best scenes in the movie, because on one hand, if you're like me and you're an action guy, you're like, fuck, yeah, this rules. And then you're like, oh, God, no, this is actually horrible. Like, this is not how you stop bullying. You don't beat up a bunch of children, (laughs) you know, and and so it and you also see the way in which he so calmly after it's over, you know, he tells the bartender, he's like, you're going to call the cops. You're going to tell them a bunch of kids came in. You tried to ID them, but they didn't, you know, they didn't. I mean, this is what's going to happen, right? You know, otherwise. He might be in some trouble for serving minors, you know, and just the, the again, the way he just everything just shuts down on him. And I love the the line before the fight starts. He gives the bartender the 200 bucks for the blowjob shots and the Cosmopolitans. And Luke goes, what are you rich? And he just looks at him and he's got the kind of smirk that he has for the whole movie. And he goes, eh, cash is easy to get. And And like, again, once you realize where the movie's going, you're like, Oh, yeah, like you just kill people and steal their cash. (laughs) Like, like like cash is your operating budget. And so you're trained if you need cash, you're going to just kill people and steal their cash. Like, yeah. To me, the line in the fight where it, it, where it goes from being, oh, this is awesome to being unsettling is when he steps on that guy's ankle and you get that kind of, uh, is it his ankle or is it his hand? I can't remember if it, but, but it's also, he's like the star football player. So like, he like literally fucks that kid up and ruins his life. <laughs> yeah. Guess. I want to say it's his ankle. Cause I remember yeah. him like holding his leg and it's one of my favorite Foley sequences in the movie. Just that sound is so, was so well done. Just that, you know, it wasn't just like a stick of celery breaking. It was, it's one of those sounds to me that you can feel. Yeah. It sounded gross. Like it sounded, it sounded bad. <laughs> It sounded wet almost like there was the snap, but it also sounded wet. And that that's just always a bad that's a bad fully sound for me. I don't enjoy that when somebody gets stabbed or punched or a limb broken. And it, instead of just like you said, instead of just going with the celery breaking, they also go with. But here's also what the muscles and tendons and veins and sinews will sound like. And you get the kind of snap. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. <laughs> yeah, it's. um there's the sound of a broken limb and then there's the sound of a compound fracture with ligament damage. And that was the sound of a compound fracture with some ligament damage. That's uh yeah, that was uh pretty bad, but it's a nice segue to see him. It's nice to see him kind of handle his business and to establish that he's a, he's a dangerous person and to establish that this is a guy who has more tools in his belt than just the hammer, but he is really, he will not hesitate to go to the hammer when it's when you know you present him with with some nails you know what i'm saying yeah and it's a big fucking hammer (laughs) yeah it's a yeah it's a sledgehammer to that guy's ankle (laughs) because man it's a great action scene because it's fun but i really appreciate the fact that they don't let you sit in the coolness of it you don't get to go yeah that was dope because he shatters that kid's ankle and it's like oh that's just one step too far you know, I was okay with you throwing the Tabasco sauce in the kid's eyes, which to me is the second most painful thing that he does in this fight sequence before the uh, the smashing. But man, 
they give you a cool action sequence, but they don't necessarily let you enjoy it because it yeah. ends on like a queasy note. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I love it because it, everything that you need to know about the movie is contained in that scene. And, and even when it starts again, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but the face acting that Dan Stevens is doing in this because, you know, he's all charming. He's like blowjob shots for the girls, cosmopolitans for the guys. And the, the one guy comes over and he's like, I don't want it. Why didn't you take it? And he dumps it on his head. And again, the face acting of like he wipes it out of his face and he smiles. It's not the same charming smile. It's the I really wanted you to do that so that I can fucking wreck you smile. Like it, 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 And again, he does the blank face before he goes to the smile. And so it's just everything about him in this movie is so, you know, we've said charming and likable, but also so weirdly off-putting. He's like the uncanny valley as a human being mm, in this simple. movie. And, and it's it's amazing. Everything he does is just a little bit off and it doesn't ever feel right. You watch him and you just don't ever feel quite right watching him do anything. And that uh, that segues nicely into... After he ruins that kid's career, he goes to that uh, Halloween dance with Anna. And when he's being introduced to all her friends, particularly when he's messing with Craig at the table, there's there's that nice little delay because he seems to. So when they when when Craig is like, oh, man, thank you for your service. Uh, you know, we're glad you did it or whatever. Or the moment when David starts messing with him. Is just so well done because his face is so blank and it's so easy to read. We know what happens when his face goes blank. We just saw him pull the kid's ankle. We know that this could end very badly. And they hold it for an uncomfortable amount of time where he's just not even mean mugging Craig. He's blank mugging him. And you just watch Craig squirm and uh, squirm and squirm and squirm before he finally clicks over and he drops that little smile and he says, I'm just messing with you or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's a, uh, but you wouldn't support us by doing anything like enlisting, right? You know, and it's just, and he just, and, and I, again, perfect casting, very small role, but casting Joel David Moore, who I think is a, a, a great character actor and, and very, you know, sort of has a very expressive face. So it's a very nice contrast because he does such a great job of doing all the squirming and they're like, no, no, man, I didn't mean that, you know, while contrasted with Dan Stevens, just blank face. And again, then you can literally see it. The switch flips. It's almost like the programming is saying you're being too uncomfortable. You're going to blow your cover here. you got to, you know, you got to you got to mellow out the situation here and his eyes light up and he smiles and he's like, I'm just messing with you, man. You know, it's this is such a hurricane of an acting performance, but then they're smart enough to also surround Stevens with the right kind of actors who can play off of him. Another example of that is that the same thing when he's having sex with Kristen and she's, she's on top of him and he's just there flat, placid, like nothing, you know? And she's like, it doesn't seem like you're into this. And all of a sudden he like grabs her and jumps on top of her and gets all, you know, aggressive and all into it. Because again, you can see it's the, it's the, again, that programming saying you're, you're fucking up here. You're blowing your cover. You've got to act like you're into this. 
and so again, that's, yeah, it's a nice contrast or nice, not contrast, but companion to the bar scene as far as outlining exactly who David is. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point to talk about the, particularly the actors around him responding to him, do a lot of, do a lot of the hard work of, of establishing the character and of, of establishing those little, because it seems like as the movie goes on more, we get more of those moments where David's programming starts to slip a little bit, or we get more of those, more of those pauses where he's stuck in neutral, where he's out of gear. The transmissions almost, you can almost hear the transmission grinding as he, as the programming pushes him into one direction or the other of how to respond to, to these folks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, you see it, there's just, ah, uh, man, <laughs> Ron, I don't even know where to, how to like deal with all the little things that I love in this movie, because like, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but you know, when he kills Craig and uh, Ethan Embry's character Higgins, you know, he kills when he's buying the guns and he's like, Oh, I'll take all the guns. And Oh, well you got cash. No, I'm just going to kill you all and take him. And he kills Higgins. And then Craig starts running and he goes to shoot him and the gun is empty. And he gets that look on his face again, where it's like the programming is like, this is unprofessional. How did I not like, <laughs> how did I not count my bullets? Like, and you know, and he puts the one bullet in and takes him out, but it's just the annoyance. The other thing I really like is the annoyance that David fills throughout a lot of this stuff where he's just when, and as you said, as his plans start falling apart, he just, he never really looks angry at any point in the movie. The worst he looks is just annoyed, annoyed that his things, his perfectly crafted mission is going foobar on him. And he's just irritated by that, which I love because it would have been so easy by the third act of this movie for them to have him go over the top and just become, you know, full blown Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining psychopath. And they never do. At most, he just is annoyed by stuff. Because even at the end, when he's choking out Anna before Luke stabs him, he just, he, he, he like literally is telling her, he's like asking her, he's like, stop it, stop it. It'll be over soon. <laughs> stop it. You know, he's like literally asking her to stop irritating me. Let me just kill you. Like, you're just making it harder on yourself. Which is a really fine line to walk. And this movie really walks it to perfection. Yeah, that's one of the things I appreciate the most about this movie is just how well they walk these kind of lines. How well they, how well this performance is modulated. Because you're right, it could be really easy to go really broad with it. Or to go big or to go full monster or even to shut down completely and just become another, just become a Terminator type. But there's still little glimpses of humanity behind the programming or that comes through during the programming. This It's still established that this is a person, right? It's not just a killing machine, although he is a very efficient killing machine. Yeah, absolutely. In original draft, he was supposed to be a cyborg and they decided to go away from that because they thought it would be more effective that he actually was a person. And I, that makes perfect sense to me, you know, Um yeah, he's almost apolog. Every time he kills somebody, he's almost like apologetic about it. I, I guess he's not really apologetic about killing Craig and and Higgins, but you know, dirtbag drug dealers and gun dealers. So I don't, I don't think you know. It's pretty clear. I think that he looks at them like they're below him, and so he's just doing like 
he's a rat, you know, he's a pest controller with them. But like when he kills Mrs. Peterson, when he kills Laura, when he kills Spencer, like, like I love when he's driving and Spencer's driving up after he's leaving and he, he just, he sees Spencer and he's like, he just has this look of like, God damn it. I got to kill this guy now you know, and then they cra- he crashes the car. It's like everybody in the Peterson family, he's very like apologetic about killing them. Everybody else, he doesn't seem to care too much, but everybody in the, in fact, some of them, like I, I got to move on to other actors in this, but I just can't <laughs> I, I keep coming back. When he blows up the diner, the look on his face when he he walks away and then he turns around and throws the grenades and he's got that smile like he's like, it's the 4th of July and shit's going to go boom. (laughs) And I fucking I love I had to because it wasn't on Twitter for a while. So I had to gif it because I'm like, I need that gift because holy shit, the look on his face when he throws those is just amazing. I think the thing that makes the when he's killing when he's killing the guys out of the desert, I think the thing that makes that guaranteed to happen is because those are 100 percent loose ends. You can't come back from Craig is always going to remember. You said to him at the party, hey, where can I buy some guns? This guy's always going to remember, hey, I sold this guy a bunch of guns. Those are definitely loose ends that you go into knowing those are going to have to be clipped. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Killing them is part of the mission. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're not killing them is not the mission. It's like killing spent when he kills Spencer's boss. That's part of the mission to make the Peterson family's life better. Setting up Zeke, you know, because he sees how Spencer doesn't like Zeke and how Zeke makes Anna upset. All of that is all actually part of his mission to help the Peterson family. It's it's when, you know, when he blows up the diner, kills Kristen and blows up the diner, that's after everything's gone to shit. And I think that's why you get the different look about it, you know, where he's like sort of almost like weirdly gleeful because he's not on mission at that point. He's just like, I'm just going to blow up a diner. It's going to be fun, (laughs) you know. And so because I'm with you, because I don't think for a second that there was never there was never any doubt about killing those guys at the quarry. That's part of that's on mission. That's part of his operating orders for what he's trying to do here. It's interesting because it kind of sets up the situation at school a little bit because Luke has been fully taken under David's wing at this point, and he's seen the way to solve these problems can be violence. Maybe I should try violence. So when Luke is at school, we're going to jump ahead to that part where Luke's at school and the guy and the kid starts picking on him. We see that the whole thing is you want to be in any kind of combat situation. You want to be quick and decisive. You want to decide what to do first. So when the kid is like poking him with the, the sharpened pencil or whatever, Luke just turns around and punches him full on in the face, just without any preamble. <laughs> unlike, unlike the really smooth, professional, impressive fight scene that David pulls on at the bar, the fight scene at the school really does feel like a couple of kids getting into a fight in class. Well, especially because once Luke cracks that yardstick over the kid's face and the way he just starts like howling, you know, which again is one of those things where it's like, you know, most bullies are actually cowards and weak. And so it's on one hand, it's kind of cool because it's like, yeah, Luke, stand up to your bully. But yeah, the way the kid, because again, they're still kids, man. They're still high school kids. And I don't think they really make it clear, but I think it's pretty clear. Luke's not like a senior, you know, he's probably like a sophomore because he can't drive. So he's probably like a sophomore. So, you know, we're not talking about, we're talking about like 15 year old kids here. 
and he's cracking that yardstick and the kid just starts howling in pain, which is, again, yeah, one of those things where it looks like kids fighting in school, but it also, I don't know, I, you know, I'm an old Ron, as are you, uh, but I'm yes. still, so I don't know what high school is like now, but I know when I was a kid in high school, cracking a yardstick over somebody's face would have kind of been considered a bridge too far. High school fights almost had this sort of ritualized rule of you did a lot of pushing you maybe threw a couple of punches. I, I'm sure it's different now, but I I think that's what the movie's playing in is that like Luke standing up for himself is good. Luke cracking a yardstick over a kid's face is a bridge too far that is a negative influence that David's brought to him. It very much in, in a sense, it very much echoes that bar fight because he just takes that one step too far, just like David. And that sets up one of your favorite scenes, the uh, meeting with the principal and one of my favorite scenes. And man, it's really well written and it, and it flows very logically in the way David seems to build his argument as he goes along, taking the little clues that he picked up from Luke before stepping in with the principal. It's, it's almost like he talks to Luke to figure out what happened. And that's when he starts to formulate his plan of attack. And the principal kind of, you know, zero tolerance policy takes all the steps that David needs in order for him to successfully execute his mission. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, lo I love to because when Luke tells him what happened, David just he gets again that smile and he just goes, awesome. OK, you know, and and, and then because he's like not even sure he's going to go in, but he talks to Luke and then he like looks at Lauren and he goes, I'll go in with you. You know, and it's just and yeah, he walks in. And he just immediately, you know, from minute one that that principal is not in any that principal has no control in, in that situation. He has he is not even in the game. He's playing fucking beer league hockey and uh, and David's the Tampa Bay Lightning. Like, like it's not even a competition here. And and I just I do love the way it plays out because again it's that movie doing the 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 balancing act of making all of this stuff seem very cool while then immediately undercutting it because you know that scene is cool because zero tolerance in that situation is a crap rule and and Luke shouldn't have been expelled like that that was not a situation where he should have been expelled and so david's doing the right thing but then they immediately undercut it by their conversation at afterwards and it's like oh no again this isn't about david doing the right thing this is about david doing what his mission is telling him to do yeah and it's 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 a pretty uneven escalation of force too if we're being honest go to their house go and burn their house down with their families inside is, is that should have been a warning sign even for like luke but i think he's still very much swayed by david which makes sense i mean if you're luke how would you not be right like luke totally reminds me of evan peters in never back down you know i don't know if you've ever seen that movie ron but uh they're they're basically the same character but yeah if you're luke and you're getting beat on how could you not just be enthralled by somebody like david who's so cool and so charming and so capable but also so willing to go above and beyond to protect you but it is it is it's again, it's all those little cracks. It's all those little things where 
you start to see that he's not the right person for Luke. Let's just put it that way. One of the things that I like that they establish is that David is present and Spencer never seems to be present in the family. He has very little interaction with the rest of his family. His only interaction with Anna is basically to yell at her. We never really see him interacting with Luke all that much. So it's like this guy shows up. He's here for me. He's here for us. He's here for our family in a way that my father can't be because he's out trying to earn a promotion. It's kind of a fun wrinkle, I think, that I didn't really pay attention to until I watched it here most recently, probably out of some guilt over all the time I have to spend at work and be away from my daughter. That hit me in a way that it never really hit me before. Well, and you also kind of get the sense, again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you also kind of get the sense that that's what Caleb provided to the family, right? The idea Mm -hmm. that that because Spencer was gone so much, you know, Caleb was the man of the house. Caleb was Anna's best friend and Luke's protector and stuff like that. Again, it is him sliding into that role, filling that role. Because, again, this whole movie doesn't work if they don't establish that the family loves Caleb, that this family has been devastated by the loss of their son. Uh, And so I think you can extrapolate a lot about the type of person, at least maybe, you know, before he was in the program, that Caleb was. And that's what David is trying to replicate is that same kind of person. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that, yeah, had he not died, Caleb would have been at the school with Laura, talking to the principal, trying to, you know, save Luke. And and again, that's not necessarily there in the text, but I think the subtext is is pretty clear. I definitely don't think you're reading too much into it. I think you're definitely on the, the right wavelength for it. David is even like helping out with the family chores after the stuff at the school, do a little bit more of our uh, internet research. And that leads to Carver getting the getting information about David. And he shows up to town looking for him. And what's David doing? He's hanging up laundry with his ersatz mom. Yeah, it's, you know, and we've gotten prior to that, the scene where he's trying to cut, you know, carve pumpkins, pumpkins with uh, with Luke, which also you get the guy, oh, your parents knives suck, you know, and he pulls out the butterfly <laughs> knife, but which is a Chekhov's butterfly knife because that becomes very important. But yeah, he has really tried to ingratiate himself into this this family when all these guys with guns show up and then it all goes to hell at that point. So can we talk about the motley crew that Carver assembles? <laughs> yeah. the, the fact that one of the dudes is basically me and some sunglasses who sh- shows up and he's the first guy who gets killed does not speak highly of your mission force well i just i do love it because they do set it up because carver's basically like i need shooters i need as many of them as you can get so i get the sense that they're not you know they're kind of hoping for a quantity not quality kind of thing in this situation um because they don't have a lot of time to work and so it's sort of a just get me get me who's already on the ground that you can get uh, because he also says, you know, I, I'll brief him on the ground. We can't, you know, we can't have any leaks or anything here. So, yeah, I'm not really expecting him to get the highest quality dudes. No, no. And there's definitely uh, no consideration to fire discipline or or uh, picking a, an avenue fire or anything like that. Because they once David starts shooting and he shoots the guy who looks like me, it just becomes a full on gun pornography We've got this house. Let's just shoot it full of holes type of scenario, which 
had to be a lot of fun for the uh, the special effects team and the armorers to shoot. They are just going to town on this house. There's going to be nothing left of the Peterson residence by the time these guys are done one way or the other. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in fairness, they do clip David. I mean, he does he does take one in the leg. So um, but I do want to take the opportunity to shout out the stunt coordinator on this is a guy by the name of Clayton Barber, who's one of my absolute favorite stunt coordinators. You mentioned it, this is a $5 million budget movie. It's not like he had a ton of resources to work with, but I really think he goes above and beyond with the resources that he does have here. I mean, this shootout isn't something like out of a John Woo movie or anything, but I think for the type of movie it is, it's incredibly effective. And frankly, for the type of movie that I was expecting, I was kind of blown away at the level of carnage <laughs> in this shootout that we get. Yeah, it's really well done. It ties into the action part of the action horror really well. It's what it's basically the big it's not the big finale, but it's the the high point. It's the high point of the rising action and the leading to our finale. And it's really, really well done. Man, those guys just unload so much lead into that house. At one point, you see one of them basically shooting at the gas line or shooting way too close to the gas meter for my comfort, which could have ended badly for everyone. That that just further establishes that these aren't, you know, these aren't the best trained guys in the field. They kept showing the, I kept seeing the gas meter in every wide shot. I was like, oh, they're going to blow that house up. And they don't, which is kind of sad. But at the same time, if they did, we wouldn't have gotten the, the great scene in the house with Laura. Well, and the other thing it also establishes is that Carver has clearly given them orders to kill David at all costs, right? Like, no collateral damage is too much. It solidifies what we already knew, which is that David is too dangerous to be allowed to live. And so Carver's clearly given them orders of the Petersons, whatever. It all is fine. So long as you kill David. And so these guys are just trying to lay it on. They're just, again, going scorched earth, basically just trying to kill David. But we know as the audience that that's not going to happen because he's too damn good. Yeah, he's good. And they are not quite as good because they if you're loading into a house with a belt fed machine gun and you just hit him in the leg once. It seems like they fire 500 rounds into this house and they just don't stop firing for what feels like five minutes. It is a lot of rounds that to only get David like once, maybe twice is they're not the best, but he really might be one of the best because he is. And it's a great physical performance from from Dan Stevens because he's got to he's got to do a lot of combat crawling. He's got to do a lot of ducking and rolling and scuttling and sticking to cover. And it's really, really well done. Well, and that's the thing is, you know, this is a guy who who is coming from Downton Abbey. Like, it's not like Dan Stevens was some action star. Prior, you know, he's done a few more action movies since, but it's not like he was some action star prior to this. So, again, shout out to Clayton Barber for making Stevens look good, but also shout out to Stevens. You know, one of the things on my show that I always talk about is actors and actresses who are willing, who are and are not willing to do the work. And there's just no question in my mind here. Dan Stevens did the work like he did the work to make these action scenes look good. And that that is something I'm always going to appreciate in a movie. And, and one of the things I will say is that at no point when he's firing weapons, does Dan Stevens flinch, which is always something I kind of look for. So he really did put in time. 
because it, it takes it takes a while to get over that natural tendency to kind of squint your eyes when something loud a foot and a half from your head goes off. That's a really cool touch, I think. And he's doing that while still trying to pack on 25 pounds of muscle. So it's, it's again, it's, you know, I say this about a lot of genre performances and it's kind of a cliche to say it, but I will absolutely say this. The fact that his performance didn't get an Oscar nomination is a goddamn travesty because this is still one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. Definitely. It's really, really well done. And it's very, it's very nuanced for this kind of movie. It's very nuanced in general, but especially in this kind of movie. The tendency to go big, I think, is always going to be there for a genre movie because it just it feels like that's what you do to make up for your lack of budget, right? You go big with the acting, but they don't do that, and it's I would say that a lot of their expense was probably on the soundtrack rather than anything else. That shootout at the Petersons because live, you know, live firearms, and they did use a lot of live firearms. It wasn't all CGI bullets. That and the soundtrack was probably yeah, that was probably where the bulk of the money went. I feel like we have given her a little bit. I know we're getting towards the you know the climax of the movie, so I, I kind of feel like it's. A good point to talk about it we've given her a little bit of a short shrift here we got to talk about micah monroe because i think she's i am not a big fan of it follows to be honest with you but i think she's pretty damn terrific in this she's the perfect foil for david you know we start off and she's kind of a little bit off-putting because she's just the angry daughter but we also like her enough that we and we know what's coming so we do want her to still figure out what's going on i am a fan of it follows and i think she's one of the better parts of that movie but yeah i 100 agree she i feel like we're giving her short shrift but the movie doesn't necessarily give her short shrift she's just she's stuck in the more thankless role of being the investigative foil for david she's she's stuck in the role of puncturing his plans and that's that's kind of a thankless role in in a movie like this because he may be the bad guy he may be the Frankenstein's monster but he's also the dude we kind of want to see succeed even though he goes step too far just because he's so cool and because he's so good at, at what he's doing you're right she's a very very important part of this movie between her and, and Luke they're the two they're the other two legs that hold up the stool well and especially at the end I find them fairly convincing as siblings like I love we we've got the shootout. We go to the diner and then we end up at the dance and um, or I guess I should say the setting for the dance. You know, when she's telling him that David killed their parents and he's like, you're just saying that. And then he sees that she she doesn't even say anything. She just starts crying. And and Luke all of a sudden turns around and, it, it, you know, he realizes he's like, wait, mom and dad are. And then all of a sudden it is you. It really, at least for me, convinces me of that. As much as I like David, Anna is my sister, and and, and it, that family bond all of a sudden I feel like really solidifies in that scene to where now they're a unit against David. I, I think that's a very cool, but again, like most of the stuff in this movie, subtle and nuanced shift in the way Luke and Anna interact for the next you know 10 minutes of the movie. They definitely do kind of feel to coalesce as a family unit. The family unit was disturbed and broken by the loss of Caleb. Now, with no mom and no dad, all they've got left is each other. So they're going to cling to each other that much harder. 
they're going to fight that much more for one another. They no longer have to say, to, to put it indelicately, they no longer have the freedom to be in their grief in their own separate ways. They have to, you know, you're no longer, you can be sad about mom and dad, but the most important thing right now is for us not to die and for us to pull together, work together, come together because we are all we've got left. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and the idea is we're all we've got left and we are now facing as hard as Caleb's death was. We are now facing, you know, the most horrifying thing that this family could ever face, which is a fucked up governmental experiment gone wrong. That's going to try and kill us. <laughs> and and so you do. I, I do. And I love the way they sort of work together throughout the end of this. But I also love the way it goes full like Friday the 13th stalker with David as he's kind of going through and he's taunting them. You know, this is really the part where we get the full like David is, in fact, a monster because he's he's taunting them and kind of, you know, and and he kills. I, I can't remember if he says it in the movie or if it was just in the script that I read. But when he kills Carver, uh, he says, you know, what did you think was going to happen here? You know, which I think is just so great. But it, it, we do really start to see that, oh, no, David is whatever hope we had of redemption or optimism for David. It's all gone now. It's we are 100 percent on Anna and Luke's side. We need them. We want them to live because David is gone. Whatever David we thought we had, he is no more. And they have to work pretty hard, I think, to get the audience to turn on David or to turn on whatever they think they see in David. To me, it, it, they knocked it out of the park. To me, it worked really effectively when that turn happens, when that shift is made. They have to push just a little bit farther. They have to push David, the character, a little bit harder towards the monster side of the equation in order to get in order at least to get me to stop rooting for him to turn things around or whatever. Yeah, because you keep hoping there's a point where he's going to pull out of it, right? You keep hoping there's a point where, and no, they, and, and I'll give Wingard and Barrett credit for that. They never do. They never let him get, they never soften him up. They never give him this chance of, of redemption. They're, they're, they're like, no, no, we have spent 90 out of a hundred minutes conning you into liking this guy. And now we're going to drive home the fact that, no, he's a monster all along. You should have been terrified for this family, um, which I think is is just yeah, I'm with you, Ron. I think it, I think they pull it off amazingly. I think it works like gangbusters. I certainly am not sad when Luke stabs David in the chest. Like I'm like, oh, thank God, <laughs> because they also really establish that he just won't stop. No matter what they do, David will never stop. Kind of, as we've said, like the Terminator. Yeah, he won't stop. And more importantly, I think he can't stop because I think that's one of the things Carver gives in his exposition dump. Carver point blank says he couldn't stop now even if he wanted to. And I don't necessarily know if he wants to take things this far until it's time to take things this far. Like we've like that's been established throughout the movie, David always goes that one extra step farther to make things not comfortable for the viewer. And by the time he goes full Terminator, I think that it feels like a natural progression of how he's handled all these other things we've seen him handle, like in the bar or when he's dealing with the principal or when he's dealing with the guys at the quarry. Even when he's framing Zeke, he just 
he pushes one step past where we are okay with it. And I think by the end, whatever the programming has done to him has made it so he has no choice but to exult in what he's doing to the the last two Petersons. He has no point but to start taunting Carver. He has no, there's no governor, I think, in place to, to restrain that behavior. And whatever, like, human was left in David is, is locked away in a box somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's what you really get, right, is at the end of the day, David really enjoys his work, right? Like, I mean, even if he wants, even if he's trying to avoid having to do all this nasty, dirty stuff, if he does have to do all this nasty, dirty stuff, he really enjoys doing it. And that that becomes really clear kind of at the end there. And And that's one of the other things I think this movie does really well is it really shines a light on, you know, as an action fan, it really shines a light on the movies that I like the, the movies with like Steven Seagal or even John wick where, you know, you've got these characters that are functionally indistinguishable from David, but they don't carry it that one extra step that David was. But the reality is in the real world, they would carry it that one extra step like David does. And so it gives us this great action hero but also kind of makes us, and I don't mean this in a bad way, because the movie's not shaming us. It wants us to have fun, but kind of makes us feel shitty for liking this great action hero. And again, we mentioned it before. That is a really tough balancing act to pull off. And man, they walked that tightrope. They were, they're walking across the Grand Canyon on this tightrope and they don't slip once. That's how good they nail it in this movie. The more you watch it, the more you or the more I have watched it, the more I appreciate that balancing act. And the more I see places where they could have easily fallen off that tightrope that they're walking. We get to the end of the movie. Uh, Luke stabs David with the butterfly knife, like you mentioned, the uh, Chekhov's butterfly knife. And then David tells Luke that he did the right thing and he gives him a thumbs up before he seems to pass away. I wonder, is David happy when he's been stabbed because now he knows that Luke and Anna can take care of themselves and that he, in the end, has accomplished the mission of getting this family back into a better place to help them get over their grief, to help them repair their lives and to be better off than they were before him. Yeah, I I kind of think so. That's that's kind of how I've always taken it. Is it was it's almost like mission accomplished, right? Like like I did it. Because that's the other thing is is you know, we get the stinger at the end where we find out that he's not dead and he's leaving. And he's but he's not he's not going towards them. He's going away. He's leaving the situation. So which we've established he could not do if he didn't feel like the mission had been accomplished. And so yeah, I think I think so. I think in his own fucked up way, David views himself as kind of like the worst guardian angel known to man. Uh, but he's done his job. There's a lot of interpretations that you could take at the ending. But I will say for me, that's how the ending has always hit for me, is that he's proud of Luke. He's proud of Anna. They've they're they're going to be OK. And he knows that. And so that's yeah, that's how I've always interpreted it. It's like Michael Landon hitchhiking at the end of the name of that angel show he was on (laughs) highway to heaven filmed in salt lake city utah baby yes so it's like it's his michael landon at the end of highway to heaven or his david banner at the end of the incredible hulk show with that 
sad music playing in the background as he walks walks away from whatever town he was Lufric going through. I I would absolutely love. I would one hundred percent love a series of David just going from town to town trying to like help people. But it always goes wrong. And then he just has to kill the shit out of a bunch of people. But the one person that he's trying to help, like, ends up growing from it because they have to try and kill David. And that's like literally it's just that for like 10 episodes a season for like eight years would watch the shit out of that show. That would be a show that I would have absolutely no qualms about covering for Den of Geek. I'll tell you that I'm 100 percent on board with that. And I'm hoping that this movie it's probably too late, but I was, I was, I've been hoping that this movie has discovered enough of an audience on home video and through digital to get us some sort of sequel if they even have an idea for it. I'm not sure what that idea could be, but I would love to see it. I actually have an idea. I think they go, they steer farther into the action, maybe. And you do kind of a universal soldier day of reckoning type thing mm. where the, the PMC sends like a new version of the, you know, a new soldier from the program after David, you know, in order because David's our protagonist. We need the new soldier to be even worse and even more merciless and even more menacing than David. I think that could work. Like I said, it would basically be Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. But you know what? You know how much I fucking love that movie. So I'd be okay (laughs) with the guest's version of Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much uh, what I was thinking would be a good sequel setup is that kind of thing. Yeah, I would love to see that. I would love to see them do a Terminator 2 style. They send a bigger, badder monster out to clean up the, the mess that David left behind. So David has to step up and protect the Peterson, the remaining Petersons. And we get Micah Monroe going full Sarah Connor alongside him. I mean, I almost feel like I need to log back into my old fan fiction account and actually write this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if E.L. James could turn Twilight fan fiction into a hundred million dollars worth of movie ticket sales, anything's possible. Exactly. Exactly. One last thing that I want to talk about before we kind of wrap up one other actor that I do kind of feel like we, we haven't spent enough time just talking about him as an actor. We've talked about his character a lot. Lance fucking Reddick. God, he's always so good. He's so yeah. good in everything he does. He's so cool. They don't talk necessarily about the organization or what they do, but when they have that shot of Lance Reddick in the boardroom, you know exactly what these people are about. When you see Lance Reddick take his coat off and pick up the gun, that's when you know it's on. He gets the more thankless role of being the exposition dump guy, but when it comes out of his mouth, it just sounds so cool. If you've got to have exposition dumped by somebody, have it dumped by Lance Reddick. Yeah, and I could see why they would cut the, the extra 20 minutes of exposition, but it's really sad that it was Lance Reddick that they were cutting out of. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just so, I'm so happy that he's, I first remember seeing him in Oz and then obviously The Wire, but I feel like now most people know him as the concierge from the John Wick movies, which I'm fine with because he's fucking delightful in the John Wick movies. And I loved in chapter three, he actually, you know, got to get in on the action and that that made me so happy. So I just I wanted to make sure we gave Lance, uh, you know, his his credit, because like you said, it, much like Micah Monroe, he's got one of the more thankless roles in the movie, but he still carries it off and is still delightful in it. Yeah, he he's always really appreciated. 
I think my first exposure to him was on probably Oz or Law and Order SVU. He's got a very impeccable, especially TV career, and it's nice to see him get to break out into movies. And it's it's always nice when he gets to pick up a gun and start to do badass stuff because he really makes it look elegant as elegant as it can be when you're like shotgunning thugs or firing a machine gun. He, he just makes it look effort, effortlessly cool. And it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And he was actually really fun on American horror story coven as a uh, voodoo figure, Papa Legba. So tie that into my own crap. I've been promote later. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Yes. Yeah, speaking of uh, promotion, it's time for us to give our final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn ratings. Mike, you know how this goes. But for people who don't know, we rate the movie on a popcorn scale, small, medium, large, extra large. We can add extra butter. We can burn the popcorn. We can make it dry and tasteless or extra salty. However, we want to basically serve our popcorn. That's basically how we're going to dish it up. And so, Mike, you are our guest. What are your final thoughts about the guest? I mean, I don't actually have much to add. I feel like I have adequately articulated how much I absolutely adore this movie and think it is pretty close to perfect so for me it is an extra large popcorn with a fireball shot to chase it down and then a round of blowjob shots and cosmopolitans for the guys and the girls (laughs) we've talked at length about how much we both really love this movie and i'm going to be right there with you on the extra large popcorn and if you've not sprinkled tabasco into your popcorn i would recommend giving it a shot because it is a delicious flavor treat especially if you (laughs) i did this i don't i I was with jay i don't remember what movie i did this with jay but i said it's an extra large pot it's a large popcorn with it with some tabasco in it and jay was like oh i don't know how that sounds so thank you ron vindicated thank you very much my friend (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was the whole point of the show was to me to secretly vindicate you on the the hot sauce with popcorn thing because it is delicious if you like hot sauce and you like popcorn folks try it at home and speaking of things people can try out what sort of things do you have to plug for us uh this evening before i let you go so like i said i will plug that i was just on an episode of Lindsay wilkins schlock and awe um one just dropped at the time we're recording where we did a double of high noon and the last stand and then she is doing for halloween or for october she is doing a series on the evil dead so she and i did a double of the raid and evil dead 2 i'm not sure when that'll drop it might drop before this it might drop after this adkins undisputed unfortunately as of right now is on a bit of a high because I've got some family health issues going on, but you can certainly go to any podcast app of choice and listen to. We've got about 50 episodes already in the bank, including a mini series that Scott Adkins himself and I did where we crowned the greatest action star of all time. So just go to Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed Pod or your whatever your podcast app of choice is and find Adkins Undisputed. You can also follow me personally on Twitter at Hibachi Justice and follow the podcast on Twitter at Adkins Podcast. Yes, Mike is a great podcaster and all of his shows are really entertaining. The Action Star, Ultimate Action Star series is really a lot of fun and it's great to kind of see the Scott Adkins as the action movie fan and not just the action movie star talking about his work. And that's, that's a lot of fun. It's a great, it's a great podcast. Check out pretty much anything uh, Michael Scott does. It's all great. I'm 100% in the bag for him. Thanks buddy. 
Yeah, I can't I can't stress that enough. As for me, you can always read me over at denofgeek.com. I'm still covering The Walking Dead. I'm still covering uh, American Horror Story. will have just wrapped up probably by the time this drops or will be on its final episode. Go back and check out those reviews, including I talk about Lance Reddick. If you want to go back like five years or like three years to Apocalypse, he shows back up in that one. It's always nice when Lance Reddick shows up in the things. But yeah, check me out over at Den of Geek. And as always... You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast at the podcatcher of your choice, be it iTunes or one of the many Android derivatives. Wherever you catch it, if you can rate it, please rate it. Please give us five stars. All that stuff helps out the show. It seems like every podcast has to beg for this sort of thing, and we all do because it's very important to us because the end goal of our fun hobbies is that we spread the gospel of the guest and movies like the guest that we love to as many people as possible without blowing up a diner or murdering a bunch of character actors. Yes, like, rate, and subscribe. And for Mike, I'm Ron. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.